How many of you know that Revelation is one of probably the least read books in all of the New Testament? It's one of those that people kind of shy away from it. They're like, it scares me. It has dragons. It has armies. It has weird things in it. And I don't understand what it's talking about. And so I'd rather not go into Revelation, especially if you do your Bible reading late at night. I had a friend who was working late. It was like two in the morning. And he was working while listening to Revelation. And he told me the next day, Adrian, I had to switch it off because I was actually getting scared. All right, I was like middle of the night. And I think they add all kinds of dramatic music to those audio Bibles. And so Revelation is one of those that people get super worried about whenever a pastor mentions he's going to speak about it. But here's the thing for me is that it's here in my Bible. Right at the end here, if you turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation is there. And so I never want to avoid any part of the full counsel of God. How many of you agree with me this morning? If it's here in my Bible, I want to read it. I want to know it. I want to understand it. I want to know why God put it there, why that revelation was given, why that prophecy was spoken. And I want to receive whatever it is that God has for me. I believe that through this, God is going to give us a greater vision of what life is really about. Because one of the enemy's greatest and most effective strategies, something he brings against us as God's people all of the time, is to get us focused on us. It happens when we lose sight of Jesus. It happens when we lose sight of eternity. It happens when we lose sight of the gospel and we think it's all about us and all about what we do and we get so focused on the temporal, on what we have and what we don't have, what's happening in our career, what our relationship status is, our wants and desires and comforts and personal pursuits. And as we go through all of that, we lose sight of eternity. We lose sight of the meaning and the purpose that God has given to us as his people. I remember um, the, the TV show Ultimate Survival. I don't know how many of you remember that. Overseas it was called Man vs. Wild. It was basically Bear Grylls, uh, who's a great guy, is a Christian guy, and they would take him and they would drop him out of a helicopter into some of the most remote terrain on earth, and he would have to survive uh, for several days um, just living off of whatever he could find on the land, and if he really got into trouble, he could always ask his camera crew for some water. But besides for that, the rest of the time, he was out there by himself trying to make his way towards civilization, trying to show you how you could survive. If someone ever dropped you off, you know, out of a helicopter in the mountains, if that happens one day, at least you've watched that show. And um, I actually got lost once uh, in Cape Town. It's my brother's wedding, and I went for a walk, but late in the afternoon. And I, you know when you just want to see what's on the other side of this hill and then that hill? And then before I knew it, I got a little bit lost. I was stuck on the other side of a river, and it got dark. And, uh, and walking back, it was literally the voice of, I was praying, so I had the voice of Jesus and the voice of Bear Grylls that led me home. Right, I got home like two hours later in the dark, but if it wasn't for Bear Grylls and Jesus, I don't know where I would be today. And so, in one of these episodes, Bear Grylls gets dropped off in the swamps of Louisiana. And it's unlike other terrain, because normally if you're on a mountain, you kind of keep your point of view until you can find a stream, and then you get down to the stream, and you follow the stream, and usually it'll lead to civilization at some point. And, you know, all kinds of other terrain, you can follow that logic. But in the swamps of Louisiana, everything is flat, everything is underwater, and you're always in the midst of the trees. And so he was literally uh, trying to prevent himself from just going in circles, walking in the same areas over and over again, just wandering, because he has nothing to give him perspective. And he said that the, the ultimate need that he had in that moment was to get to a vantage point where he could actually figure out a direction that he needed to head into. 
And so at one point he came across a clearing, and in this clearing there was a yacht that had been blown there by uh, Hurricane Katrina at that time. And he said, this was the key. This yacht is what was going to save him. And so he climbed up the mast of the yacht, a really tall mast, which took him above the level of the trees. And he was able to get perspective of the lay of the land and figure out the direction that he needed to head in. And I believe that that is what the book of Revelation does for us. It raises us up beyond the everyday, beyond the ordinary, beyond the traffic on the Monday morning, beyond the demands of your boss, beyond the demands of family life, beyond your financial pressures, beyond all the things that you're longing for. It takes us above all of that, and all of a sudden we can see there is more. There is a heading, there is a direction, there is a future, there is a place that God is taking us to. So it gives us perspective, it reveals, it opens up. That's what the book of Revelation does. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which when you hear that word, I know that you're thinking of zombies walking through deserted streets, you know, just like, you know, you, you get flashbacks of tsunamis and earthquakes and people stockpiling tin food and, and Bruce Willis saving us all once again, you know, with an ingenious plan. And that's what we think of when we hear the word apocalypsis, that Greek, Greek word which is translated revelation or apocalypse. But really what the word means, means uncovering. It means uncovering, unveiling, to draw back the curtain and to reveal the reality of the situation, to reveal the thing behind the thing, to allow us to see the reality of the spirit rather than just wandering in the trees of the temporal, walking around in the swamps of our everyday lives rather than having a greater vision for our lives and for our future and for all of eternity. It shows things as they truly are, and when we begin to see things as they truly are in the spiritual reality, and we see Jesus for who He truly is, we are changed. It brings change to our life. People uh, try to do everything they can to change themselves, only to discover that all the self-help and self-belief and self-effort on the planet cannot fundamentally change you, cannot fundamentally set you free. The Scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it tells us that it's by beholding Jesus, by looking in him with unveiled face, the curtain draw back, the revelation of Jesus. As we behold him, we are transformed from glory to glory into his image. And so the key to change in our lives is to see Jesus as he truly is. People still see Jesus as that twisted figure on the cross, as if he's still up there, frail in his humanity, they don't have a revelation of Jesus as he is now with all of his power and all of his grace and all of his majesty and all of just the, the wonders of his person. As Paul describes it, he says that my, my, my sole purpose in life is to become more intimately acquainted with the wonders of his person. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. In fact, in Revelation 1 verse 1, it starts, and if you have your Bibles here this morning, you can go to Revelation 1. We're going we're to go through Revelation 1 this morning. But in Revelation 1, it starts by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only a revelation brought to us by Jesus in this vision to the Apostle John, but the revelation of who Jesus is what his power is, what his majesty is, what his love is, what his grace is, what he is and in all of his authority and his splendor. As he was transfigured on the mount when uh, those three disciples saw him there in his glory, we get to see him 
in that glory here in the book of Revelation, and it changes us when we see Jesus in this way. Ultimately, Revelation is not about trying to determine on what exact date Jesus is going to return. You know, there was once a book written in Christianity called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And then the next year they published the book 89 Reasons Why Jesus Did Not Return in 88. So many people have tried to predict and they use the book of Revelation, but the book of Revelation is not about trying to determine the exact date of Jesus' return. It's also not about trying to figure out the eye color of the Antichrist or any other speculation around what might happen. It's actually about having a greater understanding, a greater revelation, a greater perspective on who Jesus is. Being in awe of Him again. Standing at a place where you're looking at the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ in all of His glory and recovering a sense of awe. Because so often we just turn Jesus into a religion, into a Bible story, into an everyday whatever we need Him to be. And we kind of shape God in our image rather than allowing God to shape us in His. And Revelation brings the image back. It brings the picture back. It brings the understanding back so that we can stand in awe of God again. So that we can be changed by the majesty and the glory and the beauty of who He is. Being in awe of our great God. And what that does is it takes us beyond the distractions of life to see with open eyes again the reality of eternity and to live our lives accordingly. And that's why we've called this series Awe and Eternity. We always want to know how it ends. You know, you tell yourself you're going to watch one episode of your favorite series, your current series. And then what happens when that episode ends? You just let that Netflix roll over onto the next one, baby. You're like, I don't care what the... Before you know it, birds are chirping. Birds are chirping. Anybody ever experienced this? And, you, and, and like the, the reality of what you have done sinks in. Like you got a meeting at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning and it's 5 a.m., and you're still watching, because we always want to know how it ends. We do this on the macro level. We want to know how the world is going to turn out, how our country is going to turn out. But we also do this on a micro level, where we look at our own lives and how much of our time is spent wondering when we're going to enter the next season, when this moment will be over, when this difficulty will be past, when, when we'll get through, you know, if you're single, when am I going to get married? I, I, you know, I can't begin to live until I'm married. And when you're married, when am I going to have kids? And, and when you have kids, you know, when are they going to grow up and leave, you know? And, um, you know, my, my kid's like, my oldest boy is seven. He's still not contributing to rent at this point. And, and like, you know, when is that going to start happening? And we, you, know, you start to worry, and you're always wanting to go into the next season and the next season and the next season rather than just being present in your current season, in today, and being aware of the fact that Jesus is present right now in your moment, in whatever you're facing. Too many of us are always worrying about the future and never living in the now. And so Revelation as a book and as a letter and as a prophecy is not so concerned about describing how it ends, but getting us to know the one who is the beginning and the end. He wants us to know Him, that He is the beginning and the end, that whatever happens in the future, it's all in His hands. And so often we miss out, we, we lose sight of Jesus because we're so focused on what's happening in the world, we're, we're overwhelmed by what's happening in the, in the economy or in the government or in our personal situations, 
We ultimately become concerned with ourselves, saving ourselves. And Jesus is saying through the book of Revelation, will you look at me? Will you see me? Will you fix your eyes on me? I am the author and the finisher of your faith. I am your hope. I am your confidence. I am your salvation. I am your sanctification. I am your future. I hold your life in my hand. Will you see me? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so my hope is that through this study, we will see Jesus more clearly. That we will worship more passionately, not just singing songs, but recognizing that Jesus is here with us and that we sing directly to him. And that we will live our lives with eternity in mind as God has graced us to do. So let's start in Revelation 1. And I'm going to read through it this morning and we're going to make a few observations in the time that we have left. And I must mention that I've drawn a lot of wisdom from my friend Ross Lester, who actually shared on Revelation 1, right after we started Anchor Church, he came through and, uh, and he shared on this powerful image of Jesus. And a lot of what I'm going to share today is going to be echoing what he uh, shared with us back then. Um, it was so powerful, and I chatted to him in the week about it, and really excited about being able to, to echo some of those things, plus add some of the observations that I believe God is saying to us and speaking to us as a church right now. And so we're going to go to Revelations 1 and verse 1. I want to encourage you, get a Bible if you don't have one, uh, write something down in it, do some study in the week, you know, read up and, and immerse yourself in this. But Revelations 1 verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, there it is, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. That word angel can also be translated as messenger, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. How many of you know I'm blessed this morning? I get to read aloud the words of this prophecy. It's so powerful that even if I just read the words, closed the Bible, prayed, and we all went home, something would happen in our lives. The transformative power of the Holy Spirit would be at work through the Word of God. It says, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. You're blessed this morning for hearing these words, for the time is near. See, not only will these words transform you, but as you realize the truth of what they state about what reality of our timeline is like on this earth and what we're living for, and you begin to give yourself to the things that really matter. As it says in Romans, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The more you recognize what your role is in eternity and how near the time is, the more blessing will be on your life. The more you will live for things that have eternal value. And that is a blessing to all of us as we correctly appropriate and steward our time on this earth. But this shows us that the book of Revelation is something that God wants us to hear. If he proclaims a blessing over it, it's something he wants us to consider and not avoid. And I know one of the reasons why people avoid it is because it's written in so much prophetic symbolism and, and, and metaphors and things that are described and people read it and they think, I have no idea what this means. And one of the main reasons why that is so is because people haven't spent enough time reading the Bible in general. Because so many of those images, it's not the first time that they would be described in Scripture. 
If you go through the prophecies of the Old Testament and many of the images that God used in relating to his people, in taking supernatural realities and making them palatable to us in an earthly sense, God has often used this type of symbolism and this type of understanding. It's not the first time. For example, if I handed out a piece of paper to each of you in a pencil and I said, can you sketch for me the omniscience of God? Like that is a supernatural concept of a God who knows all, at all times, past, present, and future. Can you sketch that for me? What would you draw? What would you put down? Many of us would draw an eye. Maybe like we see in, later on in this chapter, Jesus with eyes of fire. So people go, whoa, Jesus got fire coming out of his eyes? You know, I'm backing out of this one, okay? This, I'm, I'm going to go back to Hebrews and read that a little bit more. But it's a description of the omniscience of God. In Ezekiel, we read about the creatures around the throne, the four animals that are representing the four gospels. For example, one is a lion, and it represents Jesus as king. The lion representing the king. And it's by the throne of God having eyes. It's covered in eyes. So now not only is it a scary lion, but it has eyes everywhere. And people read that and they think that John or Ezekiel or any of those prophets were smoking a little bit of the local flora before they started to write their books. But actually it's a symbolism of the king who sees all. The omniscient and omnipotent king of the universe. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so once you begin to understand that symbolism and why God uses it to point us to an eternal reality, it's much easier to understand. So, so if you read ahead a little bit and you're like, okay, I'm in over my head here, don't worry, we're going to get there. It's written, this book is written by the Apostle John, and this is the same John who walked with Jesus. This is the same John who was called along with his brother James and, and who heard his teachings and who saw the miracles and, and was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and when he made the blind see and when he raised the dead. It's the same John who, who rested his head on Jesus' chest when they sat at the Last Supper and, and heard his heart beating. It's that same John. He knows Jesus. He's seen Jesus. He saw Jesus crucified. And resurrected again. He has seen the resurrected Christ here on earth. He was there when Jesus ascended into heaven and said that in the same way that you see me depart, I will come again in the clouds. There was a promise of a returning Jesus, one who would come again to us. And so he knew Jesus, but now, you know, years have passed. Maybe John thought it was going to take six months maybe six years, maybe a decade, and then Jesus would return. But now John is in his 90s. And he is sitting exiled on the island of Patmos under the punishment of the emperor Domitian. And Domitian was one of the cruelest, if not the cruelest emperor that had lived and that had reigned over Rome up until that point. He's also the first emperor that declared himself a god and demanded that the people in the empire worship him as God. He minted coins that had his face on one side, and when you flipped it over, there was him holding his hand out, and in his hand was seven stars, which was a symbol of a declaration of divinity as people believed that your destiny was written in the stars, and he's the one who holds the destiny or who holds the stars in his hand a symbol of divinity of the day. He declares himself divine, and he comes against these Christians who say, we don't think so. 
Like you're great, you might be a great emperor, you might have a lot of earthly power, but we know the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords, which by the way was a title that the Roman emperors gave themselves, king of kings, lord of lords. We go, no, 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 we know the king of kings and the lord of lords. We know the one who was and who is and who is to come. We know the alpha and the omega. We know the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and it's not you. And that irritated the emperors a little bit. And so the Christians, for a period of history at that time, were fed to lions, they were drawn, they were courted, they were hung, they were thrown off buildings, they were shot with arrows, they were torn apart by horses, they were every kind of, they were boiled alive, skinned alive, burnt at the stake. And all of John's friends, all of those original disciples had been martyred by this point. He's the last of the original apostles. The last of those original disciples. And history tells us that they had tried to stone John at one point, but he survived. And they tried to boil him at one point, and he survived. And so you can imagine an old man in his 90s with scars all over him and, 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 and sitting exiled on this rock in the middle of the ocean wondering, okay, where is Jesus now? Like he promised he'd be with us until the end of the age. He promised he would never leave us nor forsake us. He promised, but where is he now? Does he see what's going on in the world? Does he see my pain? Does he see what I'm going through? Where is he? Where is he? How many of us have been in that situation? Maybe you're in a time like that right now where you're asking, where is God and what is he doing? Does he care? Does he see? Is he involved? Has he kind of just quietly left the room? And we're still going on and, and he's off somewhere else. Many of us look at the world and we wonder, where is the justice in the world? A lot of people say there can't be a God because look at what the world looks like. But you know, that's how we know that the story isn't over yet. Because if God is a loving God, a merciful, gracious God, and our world looks the way that it looks. How many of you know that our world is not in line with God's will yet? That we, as sinners, have followed a path that's taken us into brokenness and destruction. But here's the great news of Revelation. The story isn't over. But when we look at the injustices of this world, the poverty and the, and the crime and the heartache and the murder, we say, God, where are you? What are you doing? And maybe you've asked that question about your own life because you don't have to go far to recognize the brokenness in this world. All you need to do is lie in your own bed thinking about your own thoughts. You go, God, what are you doing here in my own heart, in my own life? When are you gonna change me? When are you gonna help me? When are you gonna help me get over these things I struggle with? And I can imagine John having those same thoughts on, on the island of Patmos. And in that moment, Jesus shows up. In that moment, Jesus shows up and reveals the truth, the reality of God's involvement and his presence. In Revelations 1 verse 4 to verse 6, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. These were actual churches in Asia, minor, modern-day Turkey that were written to, but the number seven means spiritual perfection or completeness. And so when he speaks to the seven churches, he's not only speaking to the seven churches, even though he is, he's speaking to all of us. It's applicable and relevant to us. But he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him 
who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne, the perfect, the full counsel of God, the seven spirits before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Those are some credentials right there. To him who loves us. To him who loves us. Man, I am always overwhelmed by how God's first statement of self-revelation, even as he did with Moses in Exodus, and he says, my steadfast love endures through the generations. God doesn't show up and say, I'm going to beat you up. I'm here to, to stamp my authority down on you. His, the first element of God's self-revelation is always, I love you. I am Jesus, and I love you. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace to him who loves us and gave himself. What we see is that this Jesus revealed is passionately in love with us. As his church, as his people, he cares. Where are you, God? I love you. How do you feel about my life, God? I am in love with you. I am involved. And you know what's the great thing? He doesn't just say it. It's not just lip service. He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, I love you. But keep doing your thing. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 9 that God loved us and showed his love for us in sending his own son. There's always action to his love. So not only does he love us, but because he loves us, he frees us from our sin. And because of his love, he doesn't only free us from sin, but he transforms us. How many of you know God loves you, so he saves you, and then he sanctifies you? God loves you as you are, but he loves you so much he won't leave you as you are. There will be change in your life as long as you are walking with Jesus, as long as you are beholding him. Why? Because it's what God desires to do. He takes us from being in darkness and he transfers us into the kingdom of light so that we can become a kingdom of priests, ministers of reconciliation, people with a calling and a destiny and a future through whom God will make his appeal to this world. He makes us a community. Not individuals running off going, I'm so glad Jesus died for me, but a community with a collective identity and a purpose and a mission for the future. When Jesus speaks to the church, when God writes even through the scriptures, do you know he is always addressing a collective. The Bible is not about you being on your own as a Christian. It's about us together as believers. It's the only way it was ever intended to be. And so Jesus is writing and speaking in the book of Revelation to imperfect churches. And we're going to cover that when we go through Revelation 2 and 3 next week. But he's speaking to imperfect churches just like today. He is speaking to an imperfect church filled with imperfect leaders and imperfect people. And his first word is, I love you. I've died for you. And if you trust me, I will change you. I will transform you and your community to something that I long for you to be. He takes us from one type of people to a kingdom of priests that we may do the work of the ministry and proclaim his excellencies throughout the earth. And that is why your life matters. 
That is why your life matters. That is why all the things you have to go through every day, some nice, some not so nice, it all matters when you have the context of eternity that God is actually making his appeal through you. He's using your life to make a difference in this generation. Your life matters. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, just like he promised, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. When Jesus returns, it's not going to be a great day for everybody because there are those that have rejected his grace. And when you come across people, I, I saw a post and it makes me so mad, I want to comment so badly. And I've learned, thank God, through years of, of, of hopefully the, the work of the Holy Spirit on the inside of me to not comment in return. But when I see people, I saw a politician posting that he was in church and somebody commenting, our politicians don't need imaginary friends. And man, I want my fingers, please let me add him. Please let me say something here. But you know, we should pray for people that reject the grace of God and think Jesus is only an imaginary friend because one day they will stand before him and there will be no imagination necessary. The reality of the thing behind the thing that the, the God of this age have blinded them from seeing. Right now, each of us could give up a shout of praise that our eyes have been opened up. That we're no longer thinking about these things as if they were imaginary but there will be a time when Jesus returns and those that have rejected his grace will wail in that moment at their, their idolatry and their selfishness and their foolishness in not submitting and surrendering to God. But John says, even so, he's sovereign and amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in, in Jesus, who was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Let me pause there for a moment to say that's so awesome. Here's a man in his 90s exiled on his own on an island. He's burnt and, and, and frail and crippled from years of abuse and persecution. And it's the Lord's day. And what's he doing? He's in the spirit. He's worshiping, he's praying, he's spending time with Jesus. And what happens? He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna uh, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea and to Anchor Church. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, which later on Jesus goes to clarify, those lampstands are the churches, they represent the churches. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Jesus loves us, he's gracious to us, and he is so committed to us that even as the church, guess what? He stands in our midst. He's not apart from the churches. He's not above the churches. He's not standing on the side judging the churches. He stands in the midst of the church. And do you know how liberating this is for me? Because I can make a confession as a lead pastor this morning to say that too often I sit here in this front seat thinking that whether or not Anchor Church is going to be a success is going to be dependent upon me. 
whether or not Anchor Church is going to survive is going to be dependent upon me and the elders making the correct decisions. And so many times I take the pressure for the future of Anchor Church upon, and actually it's faithlessness. How many of you have thought that your life can only work if you do exactly all the right things? It's idolatry of self. Because he is the one who stands in our midst. He tends to those, to those lampstands. He, he trims those wicks. He passionately pours over their future. He makes sure that there is oil in each of those lamps to make sure that they burn bright. And he disciplines and he tends and he changes and he works and he provides tirelessly without sleep to ensure that we burn as brightly as we possibly can. That's what Jesus does. It's what he does in the midst of our church. He walks amongst us. He is present. To the anchor team, when you're setting up chairs on a Saturday and hanging these, these speakers and putting these things up, Jesus is in your midst. When we worship together on a Sunday morning, how would we worship if we truly believed that he was here with us? When you serve coffee, when you greet people, when you wake up early in the morning, he is with us. He's in our midst, church. He's in your community group as you lead that group. And as we attend, Jesus is there. He builds and he preserves and he tends and he disciplines. And so often I hear the words of Jesus echoing in my own heart when God says to me, oh, you of little faith. How many things have you worried about in your own life because you forgot what Jesus looks like? His power and his glory and his grace, his love, that he is present in your life, whatever season you are facing. Verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, white wool like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. He held that right hand authority. He is the true divine, the true king of kings, the true lord of lords. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That priestly robe, just to unlock some of this imagery for you this morning, that priestly robe, shows us the, the, the position of Jesus as our high priest. He is the compassionate high priest, and the job of the high priest in the Old Testament was to make atonement on behalf of the people towards God and essentially reconcile and reunite. It was, it was a foretelling of, the, of how Jesus, how God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the Bible says that our high priest is a compassionate high priest. Why? Because he actually lived on this earth. He suffered what you've suffered and more. He has been through betrayal. He's been through rejection. He's been through loneliness. He's been through heartache. There's nothing that you can experience in this life that Jesus hasn't felt. So we have a compassionate Jesus, high priest. But he's also a king. That golden sash was the, was the symbol of municipal power and how many of you are glad that we don't just have a compassionate high priest, but also a king who rules and reigns? 
who will right every wrong and hold all injustice accountable and who will restore the earth to what God intended it to be with all authority in heaven and in earth belonging to him. In fact, in uh, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I love what he says next. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Hey, church, when you worship, you're worshiping the one who has every single bit of authority on heaven and on earth. So go do your job. You lack nothing. You have everything that you need. We have the one with all authority in our midst. So go. Go and do what God has called you to do. The white hair is a symbol of antiquity. He's the ancient of days. He's the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, and it symbolizes his righteousness. His eyes are like fire. That's the omniscience. Have you ever looked at somebody that you can't fool? Perhaps it's your spouse. If it's not, maybe it should be your spouse, you know. But you just can't hide anything from you. They look at you and they see through you. This is what happens. Can you imagine standing and looking in the eyes of Jesus and knowing and realizing in that moment that you are utterly known? That there, is, there are things about yourself that you don't even know that he knows. That he sees all the things that you try to hide from others, all the things that you pretend are not there, all the things that you wish people did see, but they don't. That he sees you completely. This is what happens when we stand before Jesus, when we look into his eyes. It reminds me of a time I went to Moholo Holo Rehabilitation Center in Hootspreit, which is a place where you can go and get close up to some animals that have been rescued and that are being rehabilitated. And I remember there was a lion enclosure, and there was a lion there called Big Boy. And he was a big boy when he walked up to the fence because the guy called him. And I was like, no, no, it's fine. I can see him. He's, he's close enough. You know, just a normal wire fence between me and like, you know, 400 kilograms of lion on the other side, um, maybe more. And, and this lion, he was as tall as I am while standing on all fours. And he came up to the fence, and I've never been that close to a lion face to face. And his breathing had trebled to it. He wasn't roaring, he wasn't growling, he was, there was just breathing, and I could feel the vibrations of his breath in my own chest. It made me take a few steps back from the fence. And then we locked eyes. And it was a few seconds and I had to look away. If you've ever had that kind of piercing look, this is the look of Jesus. He sees everything. There's nothing, we might as well be honest with God because there's nothing we can hide. His eyes see all, it's his omniscience. His feet are burnished like burnished bronze. In the Old Testament, the brazen altar in the entrance to the temple uh, where, where the priests had to go and do a cleansing before, it was a symbol of judgment. And so Jesus comes with his feet burnished in bronze because he will, in a moment, bring judgment to every enemy of God to Satan and, and his cohorts and to, and to everyone to whom judgment is appropriate, to everyone not rescued and saved from the judgment of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. He was judged and now he is the judge, the righteous judge. And the words of Jesus come forth. They're able to cut down, the Bible says, to where the soul and the spirit meet. 
you know, what's of us and what's of God, the word of God slices through those two things. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In October last year, uh, Lee and I traveled to Zambia and Zimbabwe, and we went to Victoria Falls. And on the Zimbabwean side, you can go down and get right down to near the bottom of the gorge. And as you stand there, there is the deafening sound of the waters as they crash into that gorge. And what John heard when Jesus spoke was his voice sounding like that. Can we for a moment appreciate how far this is from the twisted figure on the cross? A resurrected, glorified Jesus in all of his might everything that he is. And he holds the seven stars in his hand. He is the one that is the true authority, the true divinity. And this is the appropriate response. John says, when I saw him, now remember, this is the Jesus he walked with. He knows Jesus. He walked with him for three and a half years. But when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And you know, I love that description. When you truly see Jesus, what it does is it empties you of your own strength. It empties us of vanity and of self-assurance, and it puts us at a place where we are at his mercy. We fall down before him. We surrender our lives. We let go of control, and we say, Jesus, have your way. But this is what Jesus does. This is how great he is. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. How incredible is that? He puts his hand on your life and he says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. You don't need to be afraid because Jesus was raised from the dead. He's alive forevermore. And he has the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, Jesus begins to unlock this a little bit, that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels of the church. Again, messenger, it could be the lead pastors, it could be the elders, it could represent the spirit of those churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Ezra Benson said, he who kneels before God can stand before any man. And if we have the hand of Jesus on our shoulders, we do not fear the hand of any obstacle, any circumstance, any person, any challenge in this life because his hand is on us and he is our life. I wanna encourage you, go out this week and worship God and pray to God and spend time with God as the Jesus revealed in Revelation. You'll know his power and fear will depart from your life. Amen? Amen. You can go ahead and stand this morning.